Hello and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today I'm joined by Tuck School of Business professors Peter Fisher and Kurt Welling to discuss the recent GameStop and Robinhood controversy from a variety of perspectives. Our guests are extraordinarily accomplished. Professor Fisher is a member of the Financial Regulatory Authority, also known as FINRA, and serves as a director of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He is also a member of the Systemic Risk Council, and from 2001 to 2003, he served as the Undersecretary of the United States Treasury for Domestic Finance and spent many years working at the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Professor Welling was President and Chief Executive Officer of AmeriCares for 11 years, guiding the organization and delivering $9 billion in medicines and supplies around the world. At Tuck, Professor Welling teaches courses at the intersection of business, society, and government. So with that, thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. It's really great to have you on. Nice to be here. Thank you, Ben. Nice to be here, Ben. So as already mentioned, we're here today to talk about GameStop and the controversy surrounding it. For context, GameStop, a retail company that sells video games in stores across America, saw its stock price rise by a staggering 1,700% last month due to investment by retail stock investors who believed that the stock was undervalued. These investors coordinated with one another through the website Reddit and purchased the stock through the app Robinhood. And... This surge forced a short squeeze by professional hedge fund managers who had assumed that GameStop stock would go down. These established Wall Street actors were then forced to cover their bets against GameStop or risk catastrophic losses. And so this incredible event has left us with questions about the institutional practices of Wall Street firms and the evolving role of technology and social media in our markets. And I'd love to get into all of that. So. As a first question, could you guys elaborate on the underlying causes of this stock frenzy? Well, underlying causes of the stock frenzy is uh, is uh, is quite a substantial amount of terrain. Um, I would say a couple of things that we we can we can observe at the outset here. One is that um, the um, access to both information and securities trading um, today is as low cost and convenient for retail investors as it's ever been. So Robinhood, as you probably know, uh, uh, has several elements of its competitive pitch to investors, but one of them is that it charges no commissions on transactions. And so it's a mobile app that's available to investors. And, and so um, there is, uh, there's no financial impediment to people participating in this activity. And as a result of that, I think there are a number of observers who believe that um, what we've done is we've extended the um, the gambling aspect of financial markets uh, in a way that makes it much more readily available to individual investors um, at a very at a very low cost. At the same time, um, in the market structure and dynamics, we have created a marketplace in which um, enormous volumes of transactions can be executed. Uh, at very low cost um, in a very short period of time. So the volume of transactions and the actors in the marketplace who are incented to try and and, um, um, capture that volume for high-speed, high-volume trading at very narrow spreads has become an enormous business. So that Robinhood, for example, was paid $700 million 
last year to route uh, execution transactions through um, third market dealers. And those dealers make a tiny fraction of a penny on every trade, but they do hundreds of millions of dollars of trade. So combination of volume and uh, access and low cost to retail investors has created a, a quite a different environment than we than we had seen until the era of social media and uh, and information technology in the marketplace. I, I would just add, it's worth thinking about the context, the macroeconomic context of a very low interest rates. Frankly, people trapped at home in a pandemic may be bored out of their minds, uh, looking for some form of entertainment, whether it's online gambling or uh, trading their stock portfolios. Uh, these also seem to have played a part in uh, the velocity and the volatility in our securities markets and perhaps also this episode, although it's very hard to draw a direct line. Yeah, certainly. We live in very interesting times, and I'm sure that many factors played into the ridiculous events that we witnessed last month. Um, throughout the GameStop saga, retail investors seem to feel that the financial system had been rigged against them. And in many cases, I got the sense that people were investing in GameStop and other companies for the sake of beating Wall Street on some turf. Um, so what does that widespread discontent among everyday investors say about our financial system? Well, I, I, I take them at their word that some of them felt that way. Uh, so um, uh, I don't know that I would recommend to anyone uh, that they invest their savings to express anger. <laughs> that those aren't the emotions that I would I would suggest people deploy when thinking about how they uh, invest their savings. But perhaps they weren't thinking about how they invest their savings. But just as people gamble and seem to be content to lose money a fair bit of the time, the casinos usually win, right? It's pretty rare that someone beats the casino at the game. Um, and so people have a seem to enjoy losing money. Perhaps people enjoy losing money in that sense if it expresses some emotional uh, feeling they have. Um, now, uh, but I don't know that, again, that makes sense. But I, I, I take them at their word they feel that way and they did it for those reasons. Um, it, it's not something I would uh, recommend to them. <laughs> There were, a, there were a number of commentators, Ben, who in the days and couple of weeks after this were uh, seemed fond of promoting this idea that this was a movement and this was uh, um, a desire uh, through the quote-unquote democratization of retail stock trading to sort of stick it to the man. Um, I, I think that, that, uh, that uh, storyline has pretty much dissipated. And we're, we're beginning to see these transactions for what for, for what they were. That's really interesting. And on that note, I've heard that according to analysts from JP Morgan, uh, there are a lot of signs pointing to institutional investors as being big drivers of the surge in GameStop's price, right? So in your opinion, and based on uh, historical data on retail investors' ability to move markets, what is the likelihood that GameStop's market volatility was driven by institutional investors just looking to ride the wave. Um, I, I will defer to JP Morgan at some level. I'm sure that's a part of the story. Uh, that is, there are institutional investors, hedge funds, high velocity trading firms, asset managers who will be drawn 
to securities that move uh, with momentum and with some volatility. That's part of what lots of people have short-term trading strategies. And so whatever the cause of the volatility uh, and the rapid movement of prices, there'll be a certain number of actors who are drawn to that to participate in it. Um, And certainly market makers and and dealers are a normal part of that process. So that that wouldn't surprise me, but I've got no independent uh, basis to know uh, which set of actors, the institutional investors, the retail investors predominated. And I'm sure it's a mix of both. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know um, any particular investor's identity, but I have seen some data that suggests that after the stock started to move to levels that most fundamental analysts thought were unsustainable, that there were some very large blocks that were executed and um, whether those were executed by wealthy individuals or trading firms is unknown to me, but it, it is not unusual when um, when word is in the market that there's a short squeeze going on, that if people feel as though they can transact and take advantage of that dynamic of the short squeeze, that professional investors will do that. So that's not a, that's not, that's a credible idea and a credible phenomenon. In that vein, it's been reported that approximately 20% of stock market volume is now attributed to retail customers, and that's up significantly from where it was in 2019. And I'm wondering what each of you think of that development and if that has any long-term significance. I'm sure it has some significance. Um, I'm trying to remember, Kurt, when you and I were starting our careers, what what percent of trading might have been a retail clients 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it would have been higher. Um, would have much higher than that. So we see an ebb and flow. And some of that has to do with whether people want to take advantage of trading individual stocks. A big part of the ebb and flow over the last 30 years is how people save and who does the savings and the rise of mutual funds and, and 401k accounts where we invest through funds. So people are, in some sense, people who were saving 50 years ago and had some amount of wealth to invest or were more likely to have bought individual stocks than fund structures. Um, and, and today it's the other way around, perhaps. Um, but um, I, I would have, I think I would, as I alluded to a moment ago, a big increase in retail trading in uh, the pandemic here strikes me as people are bored and looking for something to do. Um, if why 2019 would be so different from 2020, I think we, we ought to at least recognize that. There is also um, conventional wisdom among technical analysts and observers of the marketplace that a substantial increase in retail trading activity, as opposed to mutual fund purchases and so on, but actually retail volume of trading activity is one of the uh, indicators of an overvalued marketplace. That retail tends to surge at the end of a period of market appreciation. Retail rarely gets in at the beginning of a period of market appreciation. That's really interesting. and. On that note, what do you make of the stock market surge that we've seen over the course of this entire year juxtaposed against the economic devastation that we've seen during the COVID pandemic? Money's pretty cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's it's hard not to recognize how important the price of money is for valuing future cash flows. So when we look at the earnings streams of companies, we're going to value them more highly the lower interest rates are. Now, I think what, what 
So partly it comes from the Federal Reserve and its very low interest rates that, that they put in place. Partly it may be coming from the Federal Reserve's continue to expand uh, the money supply by growing its balance sheet as rapidly as it has been. And partly it may be the surprise that such a large segment of the economy has done pretty well, notwithstanding the pandemic shutdowns. So whereas one might have predicted a more severe recession, there was huge amount of job loss and there continues to be pain and suffering, particularly in service industries. But in manufacturing industries where we, we can buy the stuff and have Amazon ship it to us, uh, the, the goods sector has done much better than people thought uh, might play out over the course of the year. So some of the surge in stock prices probably has to do with those cash flows looking more robust. But And the two together, I think, are the better part of the story. And there's another there's another element, Peter, that you're you're certainly more qualified to illuminate than I. Um, but um, uh, individual balance sheets and cash holdings um, are in substantially better shape than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. There's something like 1.6 or 1.8 trillion dollars in individual hands now between incremental debt capacity and savings. So that there's um, there is um, this idea that there might be some correlation between this level of individual liquidity and consumptive behavior, consumption behavior once um, we get back to a quote-unquote more normal pattern of interaction and activity, particularly in, in sectors like the travel sector and the entertainment sector and the restaurant sector and so on. So, Yes, well, we see really extraordinary, almost absurd rates of personal saving. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, when we think about the overall in the economy, we talk about the personal savings rate being 14% 30 years ago and falling all the way down to 3% a few years ago. Well, it, the scale of the graphs we look at has completely changed as it shot up to 30% at the beginning of this crisis and has bounced around from, from 13 to 15%. That's a huge amount of savings that Kurt's alluding to, uh, which has to get invested somewhere. Um, and, and not yet turned into consumption, but maybe pent up consumption waiting for the recovery of the economy. We'll have to see where it goes. Um, to pivot a bit, I'd love to talk about the role of Reddit in this entire saga and more generally the role of modern communication technology in enabling these kind of crazy market events. Um, do either of you have any insights into this? Well, I'm not sure if I have any insight. I, I have I have some some perspectives and opinions. Um, one of the clearly one of the most significant things that's happened in the last decade has been the proliferation of um, social media and social media platforms and social media that are have as a purpose creating meeting places for people around some level of activity or some affinity or some political perspective. And we see it in every area of endeavor from um, uh, retailing to uh, politics. And, and so it shouldn't be surprising to us that financial transactions and financial information would be susceptible to the same kind of creating a gathering place where people at no cost can be together and can share information and so on. And, and if you put that fact together with the fact that almost none of these platforms 
um, curate the information in any way so that they are simply passive meeting places where people are free to publish whatever they want without any um, uh, requirement that it be validated or, or, or authenticated in any way. So in some ways, it's a perfect um, uh, Petri dish for people to come together and to promote to people in whatever persuasive way they can a particular view on something like the value of a stock. And to the extent that they can take on some of the heroic qualities of campaigners against institutional uh, uh, tyranny and so on and so on, then that has a certain resonance with a certain group of people. So there's no doubt that social media has provided for both the instantaneous dissemination of information and the creation of groups of people that are interested in a particular type of information. And um, that kind of efficiency in, in communicating and putting a group together to do that never existed. It had to be done physically before. You had to get people to, to, to get together in a physical space, or they had to talk to each other on the telephone, or they had to do something else. And now it's as easy as poking, a, poking an icon on your phone, and you're connected with hundreds or perhaps thousands of people who want to talk about the same thing you want to talk about. Yeah, it's something that's really exciting and really alarming at the same time. And of course, yeah. In the early days of in the early days of the internet, the people who were early promoters of the internet had a vision which was that it would be a great unifying um, force for the world because once and for all, all people everywhere would have instantaneous access to the same set of information to a set of facts and truths. And so it would promote the idea that people would be making better decisions because they would all be basing their decisions on the same set of facts. Well, that's not working out exactly as the early, uh, early pioneers and advocates for the internet uh, expected it to. No, sir. <laughs> no, sir. Um, so out of curiosity, we've had plenty of misinformation over the course of human history. Do you see this era, this is a question for either of you, as being unique um, in terms of the dynamics that we're seeing going on? I think Kurt alluded to it, that it's the speed of access to it in narrow. Um, uh, if we imagine that there might be misinformation flowing because people are anxious about a pandemic, but we're living in medieval Europe. And the pace with which misinformation can travel is somewhat constrained by at the pace of a horse or a donkey <laughs> or, or, or how fast we walk. Or a sailing or, ship or, or a, a sailing caravan. Ship. Or a, yeah. And so we certainly have sped up both how rapidly information can move in good information or misinformation and how broadly it can travel and yet in, in odd circles where it, it won't be contested. And I think that that, that is something that is, um, that's quite different, and it still can influence us. We, we can be deeply influenced in our judgments by just a small amount of doubt creeping in um, to, to how we think about the world. And you can see this happening with, with how people feel about vaccines, but just to take it out in a different context. Uh, uh, there's sort of a, a legitimate worry 
about is the vaccine safe? Then there might be some misinformation that makes people more worried. Uh, and then we have to, the antidote is, is more information and, um, and help people come to a good judgment for their personal health. Um, and the same thing, I, th- I think it is quite different and we will look at this era as, as very different. And um, to offer an opinion, I, I think the complete lack of liability for be- making money either by capturing information but or profiting one way or another for broadcasting stuff that is got no that is not reasonably curated in any way shape or form um, is not something we would have let a newspaper get away with a hundred years ago uh, printing libelous uh, material on the front page but it is something we seem to have accepted and I don't know that I hope that's not a stable equilibrium. I, I hope we revisit that question. I, w- I would only add to what Peter said, with all of which I agree with, and um, the speed with which information is disseminated, as Peter suggests, has has increased in a breathtaking way. The emotion that is fueled by this information and the desire to believe the desire to participate in whatever money-making activity is as old as civilization. This, this desire to believe, you know, the great economist Wilfredo Pareto said, the definition of a bull market is one in which the psychology is such that all ambiguities are resolved in favor of higher prices. And, 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 and I don't think that's changed. I think that was true in the mortgage bubble. I think that was true in the last tech bubble. I think that was true in the nifty 50 in the 60s. I think that was true by what I read about tulip mania and about South Sea Islands real estate. And uh, there's a desire to want to participate in something that everyone says is going to make you rich. Absolutely. I'm sure that we could find an example of a market bubble in ancient Sumer if we dug deep enough. So <laughs> we probably could. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure we could. This has been excellent. And I have one final question for each of you. You've both had really interesting careers, and I'm wondering if you have advice for people hoping to make a difference in public policy, finance, and international economics. Yes, uh, pursue it. And um, and be brave about where you look for what you might want to do. There are lots of interesting ways to express that kind of interest in public policy. There, there are all kinds of different jobs to take. And I, I think that um, keeping an open mind about where one could uh, find interesting work and, and not just look under the for the usual suspects, and also to really have the ambition of keeping your learning curve steep. That's certainly what I always um uh, pursued that, that could I find an opportunity where I thought I would learn a lot uh, from the people around me and from the institution I was working at, and that led me to uh, a fascinating career and, uh, for which I've been tremendously fortunate. Kurt, yeah, that's that's very good advice. Um, so I, I echo all of that. Um, I would say this is an exciting time as daunting as this moment may be because of the pandemic and the isolation and so on, because um, there is a dynamic of change in the way many of our institutions are are functioning and the priorities and the objectives that we're putting front and center. 
So if you look at investing in securities markets, for example, this whole notion that capitalism should be considering a broader range of policy objectives that are all values-based with respect to the environment and, uh, and, and a number of other social factors is creating opportunities for young people today to play roles in uh, capital markets and investing that um, uh, are going to be very important and for which they're well equipped because they are um, uh, have a level of technical proficiency and familiarity with many of the uh, market structures today that, that we didn't have. So I think the opportunity that exists for young people in um, reimagining capitalism, thinking about so-called impact investing, thinking about how our capital markets might be uh, changed in order to incorporate the, the values component that so many people uh, seem to think is important for us at this juncture. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for people. That's incredible. Thank you. So, Professor Fisher, Professor Welling, uh, thank you so much for your time today. I've really appreciated it and enjoyed our conversation. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.